0: Well, I, am, I am so thankful to be here with you. I just greatly appreciate the fellowship that we have in Jesus Christ. Brother Marvin said that he hopes I feel at home here, and I do feel at home. I feel like I'm with family, because I am. I'm with family, the family of Christ, brothers and sisters. And some of you are old friends, and some of you are new friends, and some of you I've yet to get a chance to meet, but as we are in Christ, we share a bond with one another that unites us together with a unity that transcends all earthly bonds. If we are united in Christ, we have a fellowship today that binds us together as a family. And I appreciate the text that Marvin read, and I whispered to him that he could not have chosen a more perfect text that really encapsulates what I hope and pray and what God has laid on my heart to be able to bring across to you over the next few days as I, as I preach to you from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And I am I'm so excited about this letter that Paul has written, I, I've been greatly enjoying studying it and seeing the incredible vision that is presented to us of God's great, incredible work, of His plan from beginning to end, and then how He brings that plan into, to, to pass in Christ and the immensity the magnitude of the riches that we have in Christ. And that's what I hope to be able to bring forth to you. And I hope also to exhort and encourage you that as you have, uh, as you have been brought to see the immensity of what God has done for you, that that would result in you not just being a hearer of the word, but a doer of the word. And that our lives and our actions and our words and our relationships would be transformed by what God has done and is doing in us, in his church. I don't intend to try to exposit this whole letter in in three messages, uh, but there are several themes that, as I've been praying about this and studying about this, that, that uh, have emerged. And I hope to bring forth some of those that will bring us through topics that weave all throughout this letter to Ephesians. But tonight, just to get things started, I want to start right at the very beginning of the epistle to Paul, the apostle to the Ephesians, chapter 1 and start by reading to you the first two verses. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. This is how Paul begins this address and I think it's so important for us, but really before we dive into anything else in this letter, that we understand to whom Paul is writing these things. To whom God, through the, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, in Paul, is addressing the words that will follow in this letter. Because this letter speaks of some incredible things. It speaks about... Uh, A people who have been chosen by God, who have been united to Christ, who have been saved, who have been delivered. So, who are these words being written to? And so, I like to start there. It's addressed, Paul addresses it, to the saints, which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. As most of the other epistles, this was written originally to a particular person church. The church at Ephesus. The saints at Ephesus. It was written to them. But as you see when you read this letter, you see it has a character that is so general and so expansive that I hope you'll be able to see that it is intended for every believer in every place in every time. Uh, One of the things that's so striking to me about this letter is when you read in the book of Acts, you can read about Paul's ministry in Ephesus. It was very influential. And he traveled around to many cities, but he spent two to three years in Ephesus preaching and teaching. He had a deep connection and bond with this church. And Paul in his letters often spent a lot of time commenting on those personal relationships that he had. And there's very little of that here in this letter. And that kind of struck me about how uh, universal the character of it was, how it applies so uh, to, to saints in all ages. But uh, let's think about that for a moment. What does he mean when he says to the saints, which are at Ephesus? That word saints, it literally means holy ones, holy ones. That's who Paul's writing to. He's writing to the saints, holy ones. Uh, Looking this up in Webster's 1828 Dictionary, one of the definitions uh, of the many that are given is hallowed, consecrated or set apart to a sacred use or to the service or worship of God, a sense frequent in Scripture as the holy Sabbath, holy oil, holy vessels, a holy nation, the holy temple, a holy priesthood. The people that Paul is writing to are holy. Uh, I think we can illustrate this with an example uh, from the Old Testament of God calling of his people. You know, God created mankind. He made Adam and he made Eve and all mankind come from, from them. And then out of the great mass of mankind, God chose and set apart a man named Abraham. And Abraham had uh, two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. And God chose and set apart Isaac and his descendants. Then he chose Jacob and his descendants. And from them, the nation of Israel was created. And the nation of Israel was set aside by God out of all the nations of the world for a sacred purpose to be dedicated to the service of God. God choosing and setting aside Israel uh, didn't mean that all the other peoples and nations didn't also belong to God, that they weren't also under his authority, but Israel was chosen to a sacred purpose, to be a people particularly and peculiarly set aside for the service of God, to be an example and to be a means through which God would accomplish his purpose in the world. But then out of all of Israel, God chose one of the tribes, the tribe of Levi. And he set aside the tribe of Levi to do the service in the temple and the tabernacle. So they did all the the ministry work surrounding the the, uh, administration of the temple worship. But that wasn't all. From among the Levites, God chose particularly the descendants of Aaron, and he set them aside to be the priests. And only they were set aside to do the most holy kinds of tasks, the most sacred tasks, in particular offering the sacrifices on behalf of the people. But then, not only that, but among the descendants of Aaron, there was the high priest who is set aside even uh, more distinctly to be the one to enter into the Holy of Holies once a year to make atonement for the people. And this, it, when you see these various layers of God setting aside, you see an illustration of the concept of what it means to be holy. To be holy means to be set apart from common use and dedicated to a sacred purpose. That is a description of the people that Paul is writing to. That is a description of the believers in Jesus Christ, which is what he goes on to also describe them as. This uh, kind of construction here, to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus, is a kind of parallelism where you have two statements that put Slightly different shade of meaning on one concept, one group of people. The saints and the faithful in Christ Jesus. The faithful in Christ Jesus means that he's writing to those that are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are the ones who uh, everything that's going to follow that's written about them, that's who these things apply to. And um, that, when I think of being a believer in Jesus Christ, being faithful in Christ Jesus, we can see at least two aspects of this. One is trust, trust in Christ. A believer trusts the Lord Jesus Christ. They don't trust in, we don't trust in our own righteousness. We don't trust in our own ability to save ourselves, but we depend upon God And we depend upon what Jesus has done for us and will do for us continually. So his trust, um, as he would say later, uh, of, of Christ, he says, In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. The people he's written to trusted in Christ when they heard the glorious declaration of the good news of Jesus Christ. It also uh, speaks about loyalty to Christ. It says faithful. We often use the word faithful in that way. Faithful means to remain steadfast, to remain dedicated to. Uh, The verse that Marvin quoted, if ye uh, continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away, from the hope that speaks about a continual dedication and loyalty to Jesus Christ encapsulated in this idea of faithful to put it simply these people are on God's side these people are on Christ's side and we'll see as as this unfolds i hope you'll see that there's that there there's another side in this Grand conflict that's going on that forms the backdrop of this. The people he's writing to are on the side of Jesus Christ. They're not perfect. They're, they're fallen. They're in need of, they, they were in need of great salvation and deliverance. But they're on the side of Jesus Christ. And this is who it's writing to. So it's writing to you. If you today are a believer in Jesus Christ... These words are for you that they were written, that they were inspired by God through Paul to come to us today that we might receive comfort, encouragement, exhortation, that we would know the magnitude of what God has done for us, and that that would transform our lives to be more and more fully manifesting the life of Christ in us and in our churches. And so, this is, this we see, this general nature of it, but this came to, first to the church at Ephesus. And the church at Ephesus, uh, by looking at the pattern of, of how things uh, d- develop there, we can see an example that we see replayed again and again where God's word goes and comes with power and demonstration of the Holy Spirit. Um, we're not going to read it all tonight, but... Uh, you can go back sometime and read in Acts 18, 19, 20, and you can see the early history of the believers in Ephesus. One of the first things that happened is the gospel of Jesus Christ was proclaimed in Ephesus. Paul came there. It says in Acts 18, 19, he came to Ephesus, and uh, he left them, Aquila and Priscilla, there. But he himself entered into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. That reasoning was to convince them about Jesus Christ. It would later talk about another man who came and he was eloquent in the scriptures, a man named Apollos, and he mightily convinced the Jews that showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. They were going back into the the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament scriptures, and demonstrating how the character of the promised Messiah, Deliverer, Savior, King that God had had purposed from before the foundation of the world, was fully fully fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And they demonstrated that, and they preached the gospel. And then Aquila and Priscilla came, and they took Apollos aside, and they instructed him more perfectly, so that he grew in his understanding. And Paul preached in Ephesus, and uh, after he was basically driven out of the synagogues, he went into the school of Tyrannus, and he preached for two years. So it says that all of Asia heard the word of God. Right from that headquarters in Ephesus, Paul was preaching the, G- the gospel of Jesus Christ, the message of the kingdom of God, and the word was going out into all places. So they heard the word of God. When, they, when the word of God came to them, uh, the people that believed it, it describes how they were baptized how the holy spirit came upon them. Ephesus in in Ephesus was one of the places in the book of Acts where God performed the miracle of causing them to speak in other languages and through that declaring to all of his people everywhere that the holy spirit had come also to the Gentiles. This was a sign ma- manifesting, I think at least in some part that the division of the nations that happened at the Tower of Babel was now being undone in Christ and yet uh, not uh, completely eliminating the diversity and the variety of God's people from every nation and language but uniting them together with a new unity reconstituting them as one people in Jesus Christ. In Babel, they tried to do it man's way, but God was now doing it God's way, uniting one body together through the power of Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And uh, so we see that at work, and then we also see repentance. We see repentance from idolatry, from the worship of false gods. We see repentance from all kinds of sin, and repentance that sometimes took place in a very public and powerful way. These people were serious about putting sin aside and turning to God. Um, in, in Acts 19, 18 through 20, it describes how it says, and many that believe came and confessed and showed their deeds. They were literally uh, showing their deeds. Many of their deeds were Spells, incantations, idolatrous worship practices. They had books uh, of these types of things. Um, Worship of false gods and idols, curious arts it describes. It says, many of them also which used curious arts brought their books together and burned them before all men, and they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. These were people that were serious. Repentance, sometimes it has a cost. It has a cost. You're giving up something uh, that, at least in earthly terms, has value, but they counted it as worthless and less than worthless for the sake of the kingdom of God. They wanted nothing to do with it. They didn't want to profit off of it. They didn't go resell it somewhere. They got rid of it, even at great cost. This was a serious repentance from sin. And we see a spiritual conflict, warfare, that took place. Paul and, and a few others are casting out evil spirits. When the gospel is preached, when, God's, uh, when God is at work, conflict ensues often. And they run into conflict with idolatry in the city. This was a great city of idolatry. Worship of the goddess Diana. And they had, an, they had a giant temple to her there. It was one of the wonders Of the ancient world. And there were craftsmen that made their living off of selling idols to Diana. And when Paul comes along preaching and preaching that there is no God but God, that there is no king but Jesus, and that you're not to worship these idols, they started losing business. And that brought about conflict. But it says, mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. And this resulted here in Ephesus of establishing a new community founded on Jesus Christ. And they, they have a, an amazing history. But their history is not unlike our histories. It's not unlike the experiences we've had. We may not uh, be exactly the same in all the particulars, but anywhere you have a community of God's people brought together, there was, the gospel was preached. Repentance resulted. Faith resulted when God's spirit worked in their hearts to open up their eyes and their ears to receive the word of God. And and that resulted that often results in conflict with the powers of the devil and the powers of this world. And it brings about the, the formation of a new community established in Jesus Christ. One of the Topics that we see in the background behind much of what 's happening in Ephesians is this idea uh, that we might call spiritual warfare or spiritual conflict or a a, a great kind of cosmic conflict that 's been going on from very early in history for thousands of years and it, and it 's in the background of this uh, one of the most famous and prominent verses about this is late in Ephesians, Ephesians 6, 11, and 12. He says, Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Hmm. Paul Paul's view of the world was one that acknowledged the reality of the supernatural. We live in a very materialistic age, so so some of these things can sound strange to us. But they are very real. And Paul believed they are very real. And Jesus believed they are very real. And we ought to believe they are very real. We wrestle not, he says, against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world. that the, the primary conflict that we have in this world is not a material one. It's not a flesh and blood one. There are those kinds of wars and those kinds of conflicts. But the kingdom of God is, is marching on the offense against spiritual wickedness in high places. When Christ came to this earth, To accomplish his mission, it was to overthrow the powers of darkness, the spiritual wickedness in high places. And his victory over these things comes out again and again and again in the letter to the Ephesians. So So I want us to consider just to have in our minds, in our imagination, a vivid picture that is revealed to us through the Bible of what is going on And therefore, what is the greatness of what Christ has accomplished? Um, First of all, we see from statements like this and others that there are other spiritual beings that exist in this cosmos. These are created beings. There is only one uncreated God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But God has created other beings. Uh, think about in the, in the Old Testament, uh, other places, maybe in Revelation. Anytime you see a scene of the throne of God, what do you see? God is always surrounded by beings. God is sometimes called the Lord of hosts. I think that refers to armies at times. The Lord of armies. God is surrounded by, by the heavenly host. He's surrounded by cherubim or seraphims that are surrounding his thrones. These are not humans. These are other beings that God has created. And yet they're invisible to us. They exist in the spiritual realm. Uh, Back from the very beginning, in the garden, in Eden, remember the serpent comes to Eve and begins to try to tempt mankind into sin and rebellion against God. You see that 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 conflict was already in existence going back to the very beginning of man's history. Rebellion already existed in in the universe. And uh, we see passages like in Daniel 10. It describes how behind earthly events, there are things happening in the spiritual realm that we don't see, but sometimes scripture opens up our eyes, peels back the curtains so we can peer into it. Uh, there's a time where Daniel is met by an angel that comes to him. Then said he unto me, Fear not, Daniel, from the, from the first day that thou didst set thine heart to understand and to chasten thyself before thy God. Thy words were heard, and I am come for thy words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days. But lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I remained there with the kings of Persia. So it mentions Michael, he's called an archangel in, in the book of Jude. He comes to help, and there's the prince of Persia who withstood him. What's going on here? There's something happening in the spiritual realm behind all of the things that are going on in these nations and kingdoms at this time. This is the supernatural worldview of the Bible that, that it presents to us. Uh, we see Michael being called an archangel. That means there's some kind of hierarchy that's going on here. There's a reason I'm going into this, and you'll see by, by the end. Uh, Revelation 12. It records how after the ascension of Christ, after his resurrection, and he ascended, and he's taken up to heaven, it says, then there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon fought and his angels and prevailed not, neither was their place found anymore in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth and his angels were cast out with him. I also think of the story of Elijah when he was in the city of Dothan and he's surrounded by his enemies and his assistant is worried for him. He's like, what are we going to do? I see, I'm see. looking out on the hills and I see the, the, the armies are surrounding us. And, and Elisha prays, God, open his eyes. He says, greater are they that are with us than, than that are with our enemies. And God opens his eyes just for a moment and he sees that surrounding them are multitudes of angels. And we see that sometimes, though though often invisible to us, that that what is going on in that spiritual realm is of greater significance either, even than we realize. And this this conflict has raged on for thousands of years. And if we understand it, we can understand the importance of what what Christ has done, of what his... um, Ascension to the right hand of the Father being put far above all principality and power. What that means. Uh, We also know that these spiritual wickedness in high places, they have a leader, don't they? The devil, uh, the devil's real. This isn't just a figment of people's imagination. This isn't just a psychological concept. He is a real being. He's described in Scripture as uh, one who wanted to be like the Most High, wanted to exalt his throne above all the other angels. He is created being, unless we, we misunderstand and think he's some kind of... Um, it's not as if there's two gods at war with each other. He's a created being, and he wanted to be like the Most High. And he was lifted up in pride And God cast him down, and ever since, he has been working to destroy God's work in the earth. Jesus called him a liar from the beginning, a murderer from the beginning, and the father of lies. And what was he trying to do with his lie? He was trying to bring about death and destruction on humanity. And so if if we can have this picture in our mind of this struggle, of this conflict that's been going on, it can give context to the significance of what Christ entered into when he came to this earth and he took on flesh and he was tempted and he was opposed. There was one who was trying at every turn to destroy him and thwart him. He tried to tempt him to sin in the, in the desert. When Jesus was tempted 40 days, the devil came to him and tempted him. That's the devil's way. That's how he has apparently succeeded in the past to overthrow God's people. In the time of of the nation of Israel, the ancient nation of Israel, there was a prophet, a foreign prophet named Balaam, who was hired to curse Israel, and multiple times he was hired to curse Israel, and he couldn't do it. God always overruled what he was being asked to say, and instead he spoke about God's favor on them and God's great purpose for them. But Balaam ultimately did come up with a way to bring harm and destruction upon the people of God. He tempted them to sin and thereby bring about God's own wrath and judgment on them. Satan tried to do that with Jesus. And he failed. Because Jesus overcame every temptation And he overcame it by the word of God. And then he tried to oppose him at every turn until ultimately he tried to defeat him in the most direct and powerful way. And that was by having him publicly executed in front of the entire people. It says that the devil entered into Judas to betray him. See, behind what was going on, among the people, the human instruments, Pilate, Herod, the chief priests, the leaders of the people, Judas betraying Jesus, all that was going on. The devil was at work thinking that he could destroy Jesus and put an end to the purpose and the plan of God. But... As we know, God, God, God's wisdom, is so far beyond anything that could ever oppose him. He didn't understand what he was doing. In the very uh, act of the crucifixion of Jesus, what he thought, what the devil thought was his victory over Jesus was his utter destruction and defeat. It says, if the princes of the world knew, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. See, they didn't un- he didn't understand. God, God's wisdom over, overruled everything that, that they tried to work against him. And in fact, the very plan and purpose of God to save his people from their sins, to bring about our deliverance, was being worked even in those events. And so we see now when we come to Ephesians and what it speaks about Jesus Christ and what uh, is is the case with him. Verse 19 of chapter 1, it says, And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality, and power, and might, and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Well, if you see from the comparison with Ephesians 6, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, principalities, powers, um, might, dominion, That's not only talking about the earthly powers that Jesus is set over. Kings, presidents, governors, pilots, Caesars. Any earthly power you can imagine is under consideration there. Not just that, but the angelic powers. The devil himself. Any power in this world or the world to come. We, we might at times be, be disturbed by, be troubled by the powers that be. The leaders, the governors, the presidents, the kings, the czars. But Jesus has been set on a throne not just above every other power, but far above far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named. In uh, chapter 3, when it describes what the mystery of what God is doing that is being revealed, it says this, uh, chapter 3, verse 8. Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given. Paul's talking about the grace to have the mystery of God's purposes revealed to him that he might preach them among the nations. He says, is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ? That's what I want to explore this weekend, the unsearchable riches of Christ. We'll, We'll never reach the end of them. We can, we can continue to explore and dive into them, and we will never exhaust what is there. But in the, in the, in the searching them out, we just are, our souls are filled to overflowing with the joy of, of knowing more about the unsearchable riches of Christ. And to make, he says, all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. This, this just brings me right back to Colossians 1, which Marvin, the passage that Marvin read. Jesus Christ, through him all things are created. All things belong to him. And he has been set on a throne over all things that in all things he might have the preeminence, that he might be the head of the body, the church. The fellowship of the mystery, which is from the beginning, to make all all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hidden God, who created all things by Jesus Christ, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church, the manifold wisdom of God. See, what God is doing, its impact is not just on earth. Its impact of Christ's work and his work in the church is echoing out into the heavens itself that the principalities, the powers, they're hearing it, they're seeing it manifested, they're seeing it, and it is redounding like a symphony to the glory of God. And if we can begin to more fully grasp the magnitude of the calling to which we have been called as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, that it is through us that God's glory is being manifested in this world. And we are participating in that. We're experiencing it. Because of what God is doing in us and through us. To the intent that now uh, might be known uh, the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we see here as in so many places in Ephesians how God is working things, has worked things according to his purpose according to the good pleasure of his will, chosen before the foundation of the world, that what God is doing, he is successfully bringing to pass his glorious purpose. In the face of great opposition, in the face of the opposition of Satan, of Satan's angels, of human evil, and all those things, though, though opposing him and trying to overthrow his work, God is victorious again and again and again. So, so as we see that this conflict has been raging, but that Christ has obtained the victory, that when he, when he willingly offered himself up as a sacrifice upon the cross, and he laid down his life for his people, and then on the third day he rose from the grave. Then he was taken up to heaven and seated on the right hand of his father in the heavenly places. He accomplished once and for all the victory over the all powers of evil. And so that that, that victory is won. So you better be on the right side of that. And if we are, that is a privilege to participate in the victory of Jesus Christ, to participate in the living out of that victory and extending its consequences out into the world through the preaching of the gospel, through the good works that God has called us to, to live out the life of Jesus Christ in this world. That is our great calling and great privilege. In 1 Peter 3.22, he says this, Of Jesus. He has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. Speaks again about his absolute authority over all things, over all time. Because it's not only in this world, but it's in the world to come. And so if you are on Christ's side, If you are on Christ's side, then you are empowered and called to both fight and to win in the spiritual conflict that we are part of. With confidence, knowing that the victory is, in effect, already won in Jesus Christ. And any victory we will have, we will have in Christ. We will have it in Christ. Not by our own strength. Not by our own wisdom, our own abilities, but by and through our relationship with Jesus Christ from which all of the spiritual blessings that we have flow. All of them that we have, we have because of our position in Christ. 2 Corinthians ten three through 5 says this, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God. And bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. And then Ephesians 6:13, Wherefore, he says, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. I'll just wrap up with this um, one, I won't say short, but final thought. And that's about what this is, what, what God's plan is aiming at, as it is, described to us in the letter to the Ephesians. In Ephesians 1, verse 10, he says that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are in earth, even in him. God's divine and glorious plan is the reconciliation of his creation, of his people, And that includes Jews and Gentiles. That was one of the big conflicts that existed at that time. That These were people that were divided from each other, but were now being reconciled together in Christ. It also talks in here about, about husbands and about wives, about servants and masters, about parents and children. And we can... Extended out rich and poor, barbarians and civilized, people from every nation, from every family, from every background, from every socioeconomic status, God is in Christ, uniting his people together, and not only uniting his people together as one people, but as it as it speaks of here even to the point of uniting heaven and earth itself together. Uniting heaven and earth, that, that, uh, that the very dwelling place of God is spoken of as being here on earth. And so we are going to be called again and again through this letter to the Ephesians to live out the unity to which we have been called to, Because that unity is to be a dwelling place of God here on earth. As it says in Ephesians 2. He says, uh, Ephesians 2, verse 19. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints, and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together, groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. What is the temple? The temple was God's dwelling place on earth. We know God dwells in heaven. And yet God gave them the temple on earth as a symbol of what was in the heavenly reality. Everything in the temple signified what was going on in heaven. And then when they had created those things, when they had built them according to God's command, God's presence, it came down and his glory filled that place. The temple is the place where God comes to dwell and to meet with his people. It's a holy place. It's a sacred place. Another illustration of that holiness we were talking about, we can see right here in in this place. You know when we when we walk through the doors of this building, um, you know we set aside some of the cares and the concerns that we're going to have to go back to later and, and deal with in our lives. We set them aside so that we can focus on fellowshipping with one another, so that we can focus on worshiping God and enjoying the community that God has made us part in, and we're able to to walk through those doors into a place that is special. That is set aside. And then I, I was struck as I was walking in. There's a door between here and there. And in big letters, sanctuary. As you walk, and, and then as we walk through those doors, we step again into an even more set apart place. Because it is in here that we bow our heads. We pray to God. It's in here that we lift up the songs, the hymns, and, and we and we listen to the preaching of God's word and what we're here for, what we're here for, even though uh, it is special to have that fellowship with one another. And it's great to be able to sing and lift up those beautiful songs and be encouraged and edified by them. And it's good to be able to hear God's word and to learn and to be taught and, and to be encouraged and corrected and exhorted and and all those things are are wonderful but they are made most wonderful by the fact that we are here most of all to be in the presence of God to enter into his presence because when we come together here God comes and meets with us and that's what Paul writes about here he says in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. He's not talking there about a physical building. He's talking about the people of God. That God has come and made his dwelling place in his people. In whom ye also are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit.